Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, Michigan, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... UCLA PhD candidate in Asian languages and cultures Tommy Tran talks about his research concerning Japan's Korean diaspora, including the colonial era origins of Jeju migration to Osaka, the role of terror and violence in migration trends during Jeju's 4-3 massacre and the Korean Civil War, and the Osaka diaspora's sense of identity as pre-division Koreans. This is the first of a two-part episode. The Korean diaspora is big, really big, and there are like millions and millions all over the world. How many millions in the States? I think it's about two million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in China, there's got to be like two and a half million. Two and a half million. China is the biggest community, definitely. Right. Uh, and then there's like surprising numbers in Canada, there's 200,000. Yeah. Uh, Australia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan are the next biggest, and they're like 150, 200,000 too. And then there's millions more uh, in other countries. And then another big place is Japan, where there's a million uh, people with Korean heritage. This includes the Zayanichi. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Zayanichi. Yeah. Um, And this refers to long-term Korean residents of Japan who can trace their roots to Korea under uh, Japanese rule. Mm. So Zayanichi are distinguished from uh, other waves of Korean migrants who came in the 80s or the people who came over like uh, in pre-modern times in the 19th century and before. Uh, any idea what the percentage of Zayanichi is in that million of Koreans in Japan? There is still the majority. There, there are several, there are several waves of Korean migrants to Japan, but that kind of that kind of leveled off once the Korean economy took off. So a lot of uh, the the Korean residents in Japan right now are descendants of the Zayanichi. Zayanichi literally means staying in Japan. Yeah, to be in Japan. And this implies a temporary residence, despite the fact that yeah. a lot of these Korean people have acquired Japanese nationality by naturalization yeah. uh, or by birth from one or both of their parents mm-hmm. uh, who have Japanese citizenship. So what do you think is behind this kind of cultural exclusion in the language uh, from mainstream Japanese society? Actually, some Zainichi don't have any citizenship at all. They're in a, they're in a very bizarre limbo where they where they were born in Japan, they're raised in Japan, they speak fluent Japanese and they know no other country but they have no citizenship and part of the reason is because it could be either they themselves or their parents identified as Chosan a unified Korea that doesn't exist anymore Mm. speaking Korean culturally Korean heritage that is Korean but living and everything else in Japan yeah Uh, tell me a bit more about the origins of the Zainichi diaspora the Zainichi diaspora first came about as soon as um well, as soon as industries took off in Japan, because um, Japan was an imperialist power, but it itself was in the process of developing its nation state. So as soon as the industry started taking off in Japan, and as soon as the Japanese absorbed Korea as its colony in 19, from 1910, that's when Koreans started going over to Japan. Well, regular Koreans started going over to Japan to start working in the factories. There were Koreans going to Japan before, but they were usually elites sent by the gov- government or by their families. Usually, 
people with money who could afford to study abroad. So there was people who were motivated to do it because of the benefits. Yeah. Okay. Were a lot of people like? Did it happen organically, or were a lot of people forced to move over there? That's, at that time, Korea was in desperate poverty, and it was even more so under the colonial period, as as a Japanese government. The beginning part of the colonial period, they're just they were just interested in just extracting whatever wealth they could from Korea, so they weren't developing the Korean economy very much. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people were desperately poor, and they saw Japan as this rising, booming country. So, so why not? Hmm. There's two main groups mm-hmm. uh, that represent the di- diaspora in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, one's the South Korean Mindan. Yeah. Uh, so it's supported by the nation of South Korea. Yeah. The other, uh, or uh, AKA the Korean Residents Union in Japan. Yeah. The other is the North Korean Chingleon, and that's the General Association of Korean Residents yeah. in Japan. So what kind of role do these groups play in Zionichi communities and in the Korean community in general? Cheongyeon, the North Korean associated, associated uh, group, they're, they're known for actually setting up schools specifically for Koreans. They're purely Korean ethnic schools. So people who go to those ethnic schools would, would, learn, would take lessons in Korean, would learn Korean culture and maintain that Korean identity. Also, with a stipulation that they have this association with North Korea. Does the South Korean Mindan do the same thing? Mindan kind of does the same thing, but they did, they weren't as organized in setting up schools. So, so nowadays, actually, Mindan and Cheongyeon, those distinctions are not as important as they used to be. But certainly, in um, previous decades, whether you associated Mind- with Mindan or or Cheongyeon was kind of a political statement that you associated with the with the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which would be North Korea, or if you associated with the Republic of Korea. So it was a political statement of where you stood. So that was ideological, but today it's less so? It's less so today. Why do you think that is? Well, probably because uh, now, now the third, fourth generation down, there's uh, such, a div- well, such a distance from, from the, division, the time of the division of the peninsula. The odd thing about uh, the Japanese or the Korean-Japanese community is also that, that because they've had that distance from the events going on in the peninsula, people there also have this strange, the sort of strange relationship with their Korean identity because they, remem- because they, they belong to... Well, they, they don't really see themselves necessarily as being these two separate nationalities. So they, they identify as pre-division Koreans. Yeah, they identify as pre-division Koreans. Uh-huh. Many of them. Many of them still do. So uh, Mindan and Chingyeon are, bo- Chingyeon are both uh, involved in education. Education. Uh, are there other things that they do in the communities? Before they used to be they used to be for, for promoting uh, the political interests of either South Korea or North Korea. But that that issue is kind of lessened today. Ah, so they're less propaganda organs yeah. and more just community yeah. centers. Yeah. Do you think there are a lot of tensions between these two groups? These two groups nowadays not so much. There, no, well, there used to be certainly, kind of a reflection of what's going on in the peninsula also. But at the same time, um, because because there's this distance from from what's going on in Korea, many many people within within the the Korean community in Japan also could look at the situation a little more objectively. And they had this direct contact with the other side, so they kind of could see where these other people are coming from. Hmm. So are are, uh, not only Zainichi, but any Korean 
ethnically Korean person living in Japan. Do you think they're sort of post-ideological or outside of that ideological construct of two Koreas? When um, when I was in Osaka, I was I was told uh, to be wary of identifying, of asking people whether they were Hanguk Saram or not, because there's still that sense that Hanguk Saram would refer to the Republic of Korea, and and I could accidentally ask that to a person who affiliated themselves with Chongyang, even though they their ancestry might actually be in the south. It was more an ideological thing that they would identify with Chongyang or Mindan. So there's still a bit of that left, but not so much anymore. And in, in nowadays, the trend is that people are just identifying themselves as Korean, not, not as North Korea or South Korea, just Korean-Korean. Of the million Korean people in Japan, <clears throat> a really large number are from Jeju Island, where yes. we work and where you do your research. Yes. Uh, how many Jeju people are in Japan? Roughly, well, the estimates vary very vastly. And part of the reason is because many people have naturalized to become Japanese citizens. Now, one figure that I've come across is that there's roughly 80,000 in Tsudahashi alone. Which is where? Osaka. This is the neighborhood in Osaka? Yeah, the the Koreatown in Osaka. So in that neighborhood, there's about 80,000 alone. But when we talk to another researcher who's also living in Osaka, and who's from Jeju himself, he figures that the that the actual figure could be as high as 250,000. So what's, the, what's with the confusion about the actual figure and the uh, projected figure or imagined figure? The confusion comes from people changing their nationality because you could have people assimilating into, into Jap- mainstream Japanese society, but their actual ancestry may be Jeju. Like, they might have a Japanese name, they might identify their residency as purely in Osaka, but their ancestry may actually be Jeju. And they may actually still go back and forth between Jeju. Hmm. It's kind of hard to <clears throat> pin this down. So there's not a lot of formal census taking about this stuff. There is, <clears throat> and uh, but it's kind, of, it's kind of confusing because the other, the other third issue that goes into this is that, that as I mentioned before, some, some Koreans in Osaka will identify as pre-division Koreans. So that, puts, so that means they have, technically have no citizenship and cannot be recorded. The two Koreas are very much a postmodern, like duality of nationhood. Yes. Okay. So, how did Osaka become the hub for Jeju Koreans? Well, part of the reason Osaka was such an important draw was because it was it was um, it was Japan's one of Japan's major commercial cities and where a lot of the, the new factories are being set up. So, so it's true that Koreans could have gone just about, or Jeju people could have gone anywhere in Japan because Japan was a booming country at the time. But Osaka was, part of the reason Osaka was a magnet was, was first, um, the major industries were being set up there, and it was a major commercial hub. It was naturally a port city. So once uh, the first waves of Jeju's, of Jeju people in Osaka made, well, I wouldn't say that they made their fortune, because they didn't make a whole lot, but once they could, once they set themselves up in Osaka, they could bring over their relatives from Jeju to Osaka. So, so gradually that snowballed into a larger and larger Jeju community. There were three major waves of Jeju migration to yeah. Osaka. During the Japanese colonial occupation of the Korean Peninsula, mm-hmm. in the midst of the chaos and the mass murder of 1947 and 1948's uprising mm-hmm. on Jeju Island, and again during and after the Korean Civil War. Yeah. So tell me a bit about the out-of-Jeju migration during the colonial period. 
what motivated people to leave uh, Jeju? In the beginning, it was economic because Jeju was desperately poor. And it didn't seem that the economic situation in Jeju was going to improve very much at all, even though there was some developments beginning. So in the beginning, a lot of, uh, a lot of people went to Osaka voluntarily to seek jobs. But then uh, towards the end of the colonial period, many people were forced, were forced out of Jeju into Osaka to work in the munitions factories. And in fact, there's actually a, there's a canal that runs past uh, the Tsurahashi Koreatown that was built by Korean slave labor. I've also heard of uh, the Hill of Ears. Oh, the Hill of Ears. What's that? <laughs> uh, that actually goes way, way back to the Joseon dynasties. When, when uh, the Japanese warlord Hideyoshi sent an invasion in 1592 to attack, attack Korea in order to gain access into Ming China. And why is it called the Hill of Ears? So, as as proof for, for a samurai to prove that they that they accomplished something in battle, they needed some sort of trophy. So they'd cut off the ears or or even their noses or the heads of the victims and present it to the warlord. It's messed up. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, give us some background on the migration that happened during Jeju's four three. Uh, uprising. So oh, once, I'm, I'm sorry, please yeah. give us some background on what is the Jeju 4-3 uprising. So what led up to the April 3rd, what became known as Sasamsakan, the April 3rd incident, also in reality it was a massacre, let's mm. be honest about mm-hmm. that. A massacre that went on for months and months and months over yeah. the course of two different years. Yeah. So what began, uh, what led up to this, this so-called incident was that um, there was a mass protest in Gwandakjung Plaza. In Jeju City. In Jeju City, on on the division of the peninsula. But at that time, uh, many many of the former colonial policemen were actually kept during... Well, under... So under the, the U.S. military government regime in Korea, because there was a power vacuum, the U.S. government brilliantly retained many of the colonial administrators and police officers. So these were the same... So they basically kept the same people that oppressed the Koreans before, during the Japanese period. Okay, so this was a protest happening in downtown Jeju City. Yeah. Uh, a, people protesting against the... Division uh, of the peninsula. Right, because so at this time, uh, the two Koreas were not yet quite officially so, or at least they hadn't fought over it yet. Yeah. And so it was all just very new to, yeah. to the people of Korea, who had just gotten out of a 40-year... 40 40-year? 35-year 35 35 occupation. occupation. So there's this vacuum, this chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens? What, what happens with the colonial police and the people protesting? So there, there are two factors going on. One, it was also... It was a demonstration in observation of the... The 19, April 1st uh, or March 1st, 1919 independence movement. So it was an ob- observance of that event. Secondly, it was against um, it was against the prospect of separate elections in South Korea, which would permanently divide the peninsula. Right. So this was just the first like beginnings of, of these two nations starting to well to be two nations. Yes. So so what happened is that. Um, that because these police officers pretty much didn't know how to handle a peaceful demonstration, they they started to panic and they opened fire on the crowd. Shots are fired, several people die? Yeah, several <laughs> people died. And from there, it grows into a movement of protest, yeah. which is soon cracked down upon yeah. 
by the central government in Seoul. This is uh, Syngman Rhee's yeah, administration. Yeah, Syngman Rhee's administration. It was soldiers, but it was also kind of just like right-wing thugs, the Northwestern Youth Association, is that right? They were brought in a bit later. Oh, okay. At first it was it was the police and the military. Okay. There's some confusion about whether the United States uh, at the time had a lot of say on, mm. on whether there was this sort of like mass bloodletting on mm. Jeju. What's your impression of, of that? Well, as, as far as I'm aware, it seems that, that the U.S. did have advisors here in Korea and and it seems like they they kind of had an idea of what was going on, and that there was that there really was a blood a bloodbath going on. But they just looked the other way because mm. of the convenience of having this this anti-communist in power. Let's talk about four three relative to the migration patterns. Mm-hmm. So this was a really dark period for the citizens on the island. Yeah. Do we know how many people fled the island at that time? I'm not sure. That that's where that's where things get really confused because people still don't agree exactly about how many people died in Sasam. What's the estimation? What's the, what's the, the argued the official, figure? The argued figure, or the official figure, is around 30,000. But then, then other people do contest that it could be anywhere as high as 80,000. So we're not exactly sure how many people died, and we still, we're still finding graves of Sasam victims. Hmm. And we also don't know how many people left the island. Yeah. Uh, and we don't know how many people left the island to go to Japan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's very confusing. Was there a lot of migration out of Jeju during the Korean War? Uh, the Korean War never touched Jeju. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so far away from the front line. Even at, like, the worst of the war yeah. with the Daegu perimeter, the Busan perimeter, um, yeah. that little square reaching up to Daegu, yeah. uh, when South Korea had almost lost it to North Korea <clears throat> and the Chinese army. Even then, I don't think Jeju was really involved in the war. I mean... Yeah. So, so what, did Jeju people feel a threat? Did they feel a need to leave and, and migrate to Japan? No, no. Mo- most of the migration took place after Sasam. Uh-huh. But actually, Sasam wasn't just a single event. It happened. It happened even during the Korean War. So there is still there's still guerrillas and fighting between um, between right wing thugs and and people based in the mountains. Okay, you're saying Sasam began in 1948. Yeah. Went on. Uh, well, for years, even up until the war, there were still guerrillas uh, hanging out on Hala Mountain. As late as 1954, there were still guerrillas. Okay, after the war. Yeah. In what way were they tied to North Korea? I mean... There was no relation. Right, there was no official tie. Ideologically, no. I mean... It's, that's kind of vague, because, <clears throat> um, because a lot of the people I've talked to in Jeju... People that, that died during Sasam, that were killed during Sasam, or or even were were part of the rebellion itself, they had they didn't really know what these ideologies actually meant. Hmm. Hmm. So it's kind of vague whether they they sympathized with North Korea, whether they had any connection. That's extremely vague. What do you think about the notion of ideology post colonial period? Because people, I mean, these ideologies existed, like people yeah. understood that there was something called communism, yeah. but why they might have been drawn to that, or why they might have been drawn to, like, capitalism, I mean, it wasn't capitalism they were drawn to, they were drawn yeah. to, like, either being in America's backyard, or being yeah. in Russia's backyard, I guess. Was it ideology, or is it something less specific than that? Well, certainly for the elites, it was ideological. Mm. They had a they had a more clear idea of what they were going for. But for regular people, it's it's more like whoever could scream the loudest. And these were not particularly like educated people. I mean, they yeah. weren't hanging out in libraries reading uh, Marx. Yeah, and also, and also a, a lesser known thing about Sasam was that some of the 
some of the people that actually took up arms to fight against the government forces were actually Buddhist monks in the mountains. How come? Well, one of the reasons because uh, the Northwest Youth League. This is the the, the right wing thugs. Yeah, they they literally torched anything within the peri- within the perimeter of. Um, the, the, well, the, yeah. The, yeah, the Northwest Youth League really yeah. should be stressed as being just like this insane. Um, what do you call it? Like extra governmental uh, yeah. death squad. Yeah, um, they were. I mean, a death squad before we talked about that in the eighties uh, yeah. in South America, and they just went around like that's when that's when the killing happened. Yeah. Um, so the Buddhist monks were some of the people who fought back against this from the mountains. Yeah, a few, and also and also monks uh, did did try to harbor refugees uh, from the massacre, and mm. and because they did that, they they also got killed in in the uprising. Do you have you found out about this because of your relationship with with uh, Korean Buddhism? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, it is recorded also, but it's not widely publicized. Mm. These seem like things that might be recorded history on Jeju mm-hmm. that hasn't quite made the trip across to the mainland. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah. <clears throat> do academics uh, have access to these sort of things? Or do they have to come to the island to have access? Yeah, the records are out there. And people do. Well, the Buddhist, Buddhists in the mainland also do know about, about that little fact. <laughs> That's The Korea File for this week. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, like us on Facebook, and please leave a review of the show wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Then tune in on January 27th for part two of this conversation with Tommy Tran. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.